Hello, welcome to the Woman by Definition podcast. I'm Kelly J. This episode, I talked to Leah Keith. She's a writer, radical feminist, food activist, and environmentalist. Her best-selling book, The Vegetarian Myth, Food, Justice, and Sustainability, has been called the most important ecological book of this generation. Her writing and lectures focus on civilization's violence against the planet, male violence against women, and the need for serious resistance to both. As always, please like, share and subscribe. And if you can, if you so desire, I am told it helps if you leave me a review. I hope you enjoy this. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm absolutely delighted. Absolutely delighted. Um, Over this sort of time that I've known you, which we both find ourselves embroiled, probably from slightly different directions, in this uh, trans madness and this assault on women's rights and kids' bodies. Uh, And one thing that keeps coming up time and time again is the American right. And I think British people have a number of really uh, poor diagnosis and uh, assumptions about the political divide. So (laughs) it's a difficult question, but in a kind of a broad nutshell, can you try and describe uh, what it's been like fighting this from a left perspective and what the Christian right actually is in the United States? Right. Well, I mean, that. gosh, people write whole books about that kind of stuff. So I grew up in a very left-leaning household. I mean, my parents went to anti-war demonstrations and my mother was an early feminist, went to consciousness raising in 1972. So I, you know, grew up in a very, um, very engaged household, Um, you know, was taught to think very critically about everything, all of that. So I always very firmly in the left. And, And I only got, I only just went further than my parents. Like, this was like, yeah, I, you know, fell, fell from the tree and then just kept rolling, you know? So, um, it's, it's always been strange for me because I've been a radical feminist since I was a teenager and coming from leftist values, you immediately bump into the problems with the left as a feminist, which is that, um, you know, at this point, at least in the United States, the left has pretty well abandoned, um, there are a lot of the basic values that I think should inform the left. So, you know, things like universal human rights and, um, you know, I think the left really begins in the West with a, a critique of the church and the state, right? That's where it starts. So those were the people in power. And at one point they were the same people. It was the church and the state were one institution, right? Um, and the left were people who were willing to stand up to that and say, well, it starts with Magna Carta, right? Like, you can't do these things to us. Like, you can't just arrest us. You can't just torture us. You can't just kill us. We actually have rights. And so that starts to spread. Everybody has those rights. So things like habeas corpus. And it's the left that is, you know, the, mostly across the Western history are the people who are pushing against that kind of completely condensed power and trying to make power more democratic. And in my mind, that still is what the left is. So, you know, along comes capitalism. And now here's another source of, you know, very powerful people. And we are the people who are against that. And we're still trying to have this egalitarian sort of vision. And the problem as a feminist, when you, you know, you start to get engaged is that you realize that that still doesn't include women. And that's always been the problem in my life is that 
things that to me seem absolutely obvious and hellacious, like pornography and prostitution, you've got men on the left claiming these things as forms of liberation rather than, you know, the sort of the root of women's oppression. So my whole life I've been battling the left on those issues of just really primary, you know, are women going to count as human or not? And, you know, it's a toss up because sometimes there's people on the left who absolutely agree. And then there's other times where that's literally what they're fighting for is things like, you know, they want to legalize prostitution or, you know, they're the people who brought us pornography. I mean, literally that's who did that to our culture. Um, so that's been a lifelong battle for me where I'm very, very fir firmly rooted in the history of the left. I certainly, there's no way that I'm anywhere on the right. I mean, it's, it's mm. insane. I'm as far left as you could get. To me, liberal is an insult because I'm a radical, right? But, you know, there are these problems with the male-led left. So that's always been an issue for me. It's always been a problem because that's mainly what my political work was until all the trans stuff started. So having said that, um, the right in the United States is, you know, it's a mix of things. You've got the really far right people. And I'd say there's probably two branches of that. One is the, the very religious far right people. Um, and they, I mean, they'll say things like they want there to be a they want a theocracy back. They want America to be, you know, a, a, a country that has a religious, a religious government. Um, it's just kind of insane, but that they do say things like that. They, you know, everyone, you'll find people who say they want to bring back, um, you know, death for um, infidelity or homosexuality or, I, I mean, they're sort of fringe, but they are out there. Um, then there's the right that's more libertarian. And so these are the people who are like the sovereign citizen groups and the Michigan militia. And it's all a huge conspiracy theory, but they think that, you know, the federal government is sort of the worst form of tyranny in the world. And they are under the thrall of this, it's this very sort of white supremacist. I mean, it's bizarre stuff, but they think that there's like this Zionist government that rules the world. and that the United States government is part of that. And so to be free, we're gonna have to do, like bring, violently bring down the US government. I mean, and they, they, they get into this sort of cult mentality and every once in a while, one of these things pops up where they, you know, they have a compound and then somebody has to invade the compound because there's always children at risk and then there's guns and you know, they blow things up. And it, it's, every once in a while, you sort of have one of these sort of crazy scenes in the United States. So. There's those people. They don't tend to be super religious. Um, I'm sure that they mostly call themselves Christians, but uh, it's just the more sort of libertarian bent. So you've got all that going on. Um, and then there's just sort of like regular conservatives who think all of that stuff is kind of wacky. And the problem with a lot of people on the left is that they don't really make distinctions about who is like an insane level of conspiracy, crazy kind of stuff and who is just sort of a normal conservative. Um, and I think that that, I think that's part of what people are confused about when we start trying to identify who is the right. It's like, well, you know, kind of which form of this, because there's lots of different layers to it and lots of different groups that don't really talk to each other. I mean, everybody's fairly siloed in their own little world. Um, so yeah, so in the United States we have, it's a two party system. So we have this, you know, first past the post Kind of problem in the federal government, which means we're, we don't have a parliamentary system. Um, it's always going to be a two-party system unless we change 
how everything is done in the government. And a lot of us would rather have a parliamentary system because I think it lets a lot more voices be heard. You know, you can have parties that actually reflect way more of your values than what we have right now with the Republicans and the Democrats. But until something structurally changes, we're sort of stuck with it. And this is where we really run into problems because if the Democrats reject you know, a, a public policy or some kind of legislative aim that you have, you don't really have a choice but to ask the Republicans to do it. Those are your options in the United States. There's nobody else who has any political power. Like literally there's nothing else. Like every once in a while in a very liberal city, you might have one Green Party person on your city council, but that's it. And they certainly don't have enough you know, political sway to do anything, you know, on a state level or on a, on a federal level. So you're stuck with this system where you're either playing to the Democrats or, or you're begging the Republicans. Um, and again, this, these problems with issues about violence against women, um, you know, the Democrats are, they're pretty wrapped up with, you know, the kinds of things that the, you know, that kind of male-led left has demanded. So um, you do get some sort of lip service to abortion rights from the Democrats, but even barely, like Obama would never fight for it. He just let it all go. And that has just eroded and eroded and eroded across, essentially across my lifetime. Um, we've watched abortion get harder to, harder to get. It, there is no funding for it. With, women are almost paying out of pocket for it. Um, and there are states now where there's essentially no abortion services and women have to travel like, you know, eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours overnight to even find a clinic that will do. And I'm not even talking about first term abortion, like six weeks, you know, and they can't. And Obama had, you know, he didn't do anything about that. He let it all just keep getting worse. So even on the Democrats who are supposed to have it in their sort of party plank that they're pro-choice, um, they, they won't, they won't really fight for it. So mm. you're really stuck with advocacy groups like Planned Parenthood and the ACLU or NARAL are really the three big groups that will fight for abortion. But it's always just, it's such a, it's just an uphill battle to get the, the male left to do anything about it. So mm. then you get to things like prostitution and pornography and they're just utterly sold out. They, they, they really have bought this kind of thing that it's liberation for women and it's liberation for society. And you know, the problem is like the, you know, the shaming of it, like it's, no, these are human rights abuses. You're not <laughs> supposed to be able to sell people. Oh, and surrogacy, that's another one. So then you move over to the right side, the Republican side, and there are absolutely people who get that this is a human rights abuse against women. And it's just the weirdest thing. Um, and a lot of people will say, oh, well, they have a, a it's really because they're against it from a religious framework. That may be true. But if you talk to them, um, they understand that it's, a, a terrible thing to do to people that that there is just immense amounts of trauma that it's obviously a human rights abuse and these are the people not just in the united states but around the world who are always there fighting to help women with exit strategies and you know to try to fight on a legislative battle around the world you're always going to find them there and it's just this really hard conflict i think for a lot of us it's not enough for me ever to just feel like I'm personally pure and I'm only talking to the right people um, and I have a nice life where I'm sheltered from evil views that I don't agree with. That's not going to change anything. You know, in the real world, mostly men are making laws and a lot of them are really horrible about granting other men access to very poor and very traumatized women. And are we going to do something about that or not? And 
you know, you're sort of left saying, well, I can talk to people I don't particularly agree with about a whole bunch of stuff, but we can at least stop these harms. Or, well, I'm not going to engage because these people, I don't like them for 10 very good reasons. Um, so we just won't do anything. And those are your options in the United States. Uh, you may have more options in other places, but here, that, that's it. You've got Democrats and Republicans, and the Democrats are never going to be on our side. Not now. Maybe in 10 or 20 years, something will shift, but they've only gotten worse in my lifetime in terms of you know what they're going to do for women. So if we're going to do something to stop things like prostitution or surrogacy or do something about pornography, there's no way around it. If you want to actually win a legislative battle, you're going to have to talk to them. Um, and the thing that drives me insane is that men on the left do this all the time. Oh, yeah. like the ACLU, every chance they get, they will work with people on the right. Of course, because it's how you get things done in a government and they're allowed to do it. And everybody thinks they're great statesmen for trying it. And then they do it and they're real happy about it. And there'll be a big article about, oh, we got this terrible bill stopped. Look, the right and the left work together because we all agreed it was stupid. And women aren't allowed to like we're supposed to save our you know our political purity for our left-wing husbands and i just find it so offensive and i, I it's just other feminists like trying to cage us like this telling us who we're allowed to talk to and who we're allowed you know to try to make some legislative progress you know you can't talk to those people well give me a better idea then because that's who runs congress so it's one or the other i don't know i, I just we're up against this all the time and yeah here we are so that's kind of the situation i guess i find the criticism well if men work together they're working together they put their differences aside because what they're fighting for is so desperately important when women do it we've just lost our principles yeah and right, i just exactly. i want to win um yeah. you know i'm willing to work with anybody to stop the mutilation of children's bodies, which is so widespread, it's an emergency in America. Um, I feel embarrassed that British feminists ever get involved in criticizing uh, the actions of Wolf, which is the Women's Liberation Front, which is what you're you're part of. Um, so I, I apologize on on behalf of British women, <laughs> most of whom are entirely grateful that you're fighting. Of course, this massive battle. Um, but it's not, it's not your first battle. Um, and I know that we'll go on to some of the, the climate uh, stuff, but you wrote a book, which I think for meat eaters uh, was very satisfying, uh, <laughs> called The Vegetarian Myth. Uh, so what is it? Because it, it was widely read and I even saw you on the likes of uh, Crowder mm -hmm. uh, talking about it which was fantastic. Uh, so what was the vegetarian myth all about? How did you, how did you fall out with vegetarianism? <laughs> so I spent 20 years as a vegan. I was never a vegetarian, always a fanatic. Uh, I went right for the hardcore, 16 years old, I became a vegan. And I spent 20 years slowly starving and destroying my body, thinking that I was doing the right thing. And when I came out of that, um, it's a hard year or two, you know, when you give up something that seems so primary to who you are. Uh, it's a tough few years, right? So I spent a long time struggling trying to figure out how had this gone so wrong? Like this was supposed to be 
the best thing for you, for the planet, for the animals, for humans, like everybody was supposed to be happy with this. It was supposed to make all the problems better, one simple act, and it didn't. So I spent, you know, a good few years after I came out of it trying, just trying to put my world back together. You know, like what was my place? Like it was, it's at, at a certain level, it's like a cosmic question. Like, what is my place here? What is this supposed to be about? Because it had all just collapsed. You know, when you walk away from that, it's not an easy day. So I spent a whole bunch of time trying to figure it all out. And then I realized that I was having the same kind of discussion argument over and over and over with people where I had actually learned information that they didn't have and they didn't want because they were still in that world. And that conversation gets boring after a while. And I thought, well, maybe I should just write it all down and then I can stop having that discussion with people. Um, so I did, I wrote a book and all about my experience and why in fact this doesn't work, why it's a bad idea, why none of the claims that they make um, are actually true. And it's not that the values are wrong. I'm always really clear to say that those are still the yeah. motivating values of my life, but that's not the best way to embody those values or to institutionalize those values. The vegan diet is actually the worst, one of the worst for the planet. So yeah, so I wrote a book about it and of course everybody hated me for it. So um, that's, Yay. you know, if I'm famous for, I'm infamous, I'm not actually famous, I'm infamous for that book, but it's been a really, it's been really good too because there's a whole movement of people now who, a lot of us who went through that world and came out the other side, but there's plenty of people who also never went through it, who were smarter than that, who already got some of this, what was wrong with it. And there's really a movement now afoot to both for better nutrition, you know, we call it the, the traditional nutrition movement, um, but there's a lot of people who really understand that honestly repairing those grasslands with appropriate ruminants is the only hope that our planet has in terms of sequestering carbon. So this does take on a great deal of urgency. And I think having books like mine out there is really helpful because the people who care the most about the planet don't understand the nature of the problem. And they really think nice. that they're doing the right thing. And really that was my goal is to make them understand that this is not gonna address the problems that you see on this planet. It's not, and it, it's good that you care, but you've got it wrong. And I also really wanted to stop the next generation of idealistic young people from taking this on as an identity, as a dietary practice, because they're only gonna damage themselves. There's an entire generation of us out here who already did it and we're a mess. I mean, you can't do it that long without permanent damage. So, you know, I'm just gonna have to live with it forever. But my hope is that, that there's other people who have found this early enough that they'll get out of it, that they don't have to grind themselves to dust before they're willing to admit that it's not working. Um, most people do get that. The average person who tries being a vegan, three months is all they last. I went so what years. is it? What is it first? So if we deal with the personal body sure. damage first, what what sort of damage does can veganism or does veganism do? Yeah, boy, there's a lot. So the first thing you're going to do is blow through your insulin receptors. So pretty much every cell in your body has an insulin receptor, and that's where the hormone insulin locks on. And this is how energy is essentially taken, you know, put into the cell or taken out. And you need insulin to do that. Um, the problem is you only need a tiny bit of insulin every day. And this really points to the fact that we did, we did not evolve to eat a huge load of, load of sugar three or four times a day. Because over time, what happens is those insulin receptors wear out. 
and then you have what's called type 2 diabetes. Um, they used to call it adult onset diabetes. They can't do that anymore because now so many children are showing signs of this at such a young age that they sort of dropped that as a descriptor. So now it's just type 2. But it's entirely because we eat this agricultural diet, and especially the one that's heavily laden with sugar, high fructose corn syrup, all of this stuff that's been injected, especially into the American diet over the last 30 years. Um, right. So, so sorry, why is why is that worse for? I'm sorry to interrupt. Why is that worse for uh, in a vegan diet than in a meat yeah, diet? Because it's all you're eating day in and okay. day out. All you're eating all day long is either simple sugars or complex carbohydrates. And okay. in my case, all I ate was quote you know whole grain food. It doesn't matter. The point okay. is, what happens in your digestive tract is that every last one of those so-called complex carbohydrates is broken down into a simple sugar. That's how it enters your bloodstream. It has to be broken down. And that's what your intestines do. That's what your digestive system will do with it. It can't do anything else with it. It's, it's what has to happen. And then it's, you know, turned into, it's broken up into little tiny bits of sugar that enters your bloodstream. So now you have this rush of sugar and it's a, it's a biological emergency. Our brains especially can only survive within a very, very narrow range of sugar. So if it's too high or too low, you will fall into a coma and die. And any diabetic yes. can tell you that. Like it's yeah, yeah it's a lot of fun, right? Of so it's an emergency. I mean, your your body is like, what is with this sugar? You know, the, your brain is gonna just you're gonna pass out very soon. So along comes insulin, and it's it's an emergency measure. And insulin is really good at basically one thing, which is it grabs a hold of anything that's circulating in your bloodstream, and it shoves it as fast as it can into your into the cells for storage. Um, and it's it's a very blunt instrument because it grabs everything. It doesn't just grab sugar, it grabs everything it can. Um, right. And it does it too well. And this again shows we're not finely tuned to do this. It's an emergency measure. So by grabbing everything and shoving it away, now your blood sugar drops too low. And this is what happens as you eat these high carb diets is every time you eat, you got the spike and then you've got the crash. So it's too high and then it's way too low. Insulin comes in, you know, makes it go back down. Adrenaline is also part of the process. So you've got this like totally charged up feeling all the time, but now it's too low and you've got the same issue where your, your brain is gonna start to collapse on you. You've got to eat. So every time you eat one of those high carb meals, all right, you know, every, a few times a year in, you know, in our evolutionary history, you might've had access to, to fruit, but you know, when it's ripe in September or October, but a wild fruit is like 100 less sweet, 100 times less sweet than what we've done to it by domesticating it. We yeah. never had access to sugar like this. You might have eaten honey once a year. You know, it was yeah. a very dangerous process to get it. So it was a, a very, very occasional treat. And you're adding that kind of load of sugar to your bloodstream three, four, five times a day. So every time you do that, you've got a your pancreas has to make all that insulin and then you know, everyone at yourselves is going to get bombarded with that insulin. All that sugar is going to get shoved in there. And you're wearing, it's like a lock and a key. That's how hormones work. You've got the cell and you've got the receptor and they lock in. Well, every time you do that, you're wearing it down. So it's like a, right. like a door with a really old lock and a key. It just starts to not work after a while. The insulin can't lock on. Um, you've just destroyed the receptors because you've used them too much. So, right. and then your pancreas three, four or five times a day is having to make this huge load of insulin to deal with this emergency. So your pancreas gives out after a while. So now you've got this really exhausted state where you can't make enough insulin and even the amount that you do make, um, it, it doesn't work anymore. So this is hypoglycemia and then eventually diabetes. 
So I was about two weeks from being honestly diabetic. I mean, it, my hypoglycemia was so insane. I had to eat like every 15 minutes by the end of Gracious. the vegan thing. And I just thought it was normal because it happened so slowly. Number one, right. it doesn't happen, you know, in six weeks or you'd stop. This is, you know, years and years and years. But I remember even that first two, three months being a vegan, having that weird low blood sugar feeling and not knowing what it was. It was like, I just feel really weird. I have to eat. I have to eat. What is this about? And honestly, after 18 months, two years, I was already like dramatically on that blood sugar train in a way that I didn't have the language for it. But it was like, I just felt sick all the time if I wasn't sort of constantly nibbling. And then the worst part is, you know, you're hanging out in these sort of leftist circles with other feminists or other whatever hippie people. And you're all eating that diet. Like everybody socially, this is the diet everybody's, and everybody thinks it's normal that you have to eat every hour. This is constant snacks, you know, like out come the corn chips or the potato chips or the, like the, whatever it is, the thing that everybody's eating. And it's just, nobody understands it. Like this isn't a normal thing. You don't have to live like that. And after I stopped being a vegan, um, I realized, you know, like I would go to potlucks and stuff or go to like an all day, like a conference or a, like a gathering. And I was the only one that wasn't constantly shoving food in her face. Like everybody else was like, oh no, we have to have a snack in an hour. Oh no, here's some more fruit. Oh look, here's some cookies. And I was like, I'm not hungry. I ate Did a normal breakfast. Did it make you breakfast. moody? Did it make you moody? Do you um, think? Oh, it was horrible. You cannot keep a stable mood state. Just the blood sugar alone will tell you, you cannot keep a stable mood state with this. Um, but there's other issues as well with this because you know, another problem is you're not eating any saturated fat and also just the lack of basic protein in the diet. Um, all of your, I mean, we all know about at this point serotonin. Everybody's heard about serotonin because of like Prozac and the SSRIs. We all, we all know that it's something to do with the brain, something, and it has to do with depression. Yes, yeah, so this is what's called a neurotransmitter. Um, it's what actually makes the signal happen in your synapses. Um, and without, say, serotonin, you can't be happy. Like, that's the chemical that makes happiness happen. Um, and it's all based on an amino acid called tryptophan. So tryptophan is the substance from which serotonin is made. It's the precursor. And we cannot produce tryptophan. It's what's called an, an essential amino acid. It's one of the ones that we have to eat because we can't make it. And that's the problem is that there really isn't any in plants. It's one of the amino acids that's really hard to find in the plant world. You really can only get it in animal products. Right. And this is one of the reasons why um, you're just really depressed on these diets. So that's number one is, is the lack of protein. But the other problem, of course, is the saturated fat. And especially as a vegan, you're not getting any. So, and this is what your brain is made out of. Your brain is like 80% fat. Like literally that's what your brain is. It's a huge chunk of fat and you're not providing your brain what it needs. So between the synapses and the neurotransmitters, all of that is either a fat or a protein and you're not getting any as a vegan. And this is why all the studies show that people who eat these low fat, high carb diets, especially vegetarians and especially vegans um, have way more mental illnesses, way more problems with depression and anxiety, uh, fits of rage that they can't control, more suicide attempts, and believe it or not, more murder, like they're murdered at a higher rate, which is utterly bizarre, but that's what the studies show. Um, and none of this is a surprise to me because I lived it for 20 years and you do right. feel like crap the whole time. And it's a revelation, you know, like eating butter again was like, I couldn't, <laughs> it was like, I literally ate butter with a spoon for six weeks after going, it was like, wow. it was, I couldn't stop. I mean, it was so good. 
And my poor brain was like, oh, thank you. It's been 20 years. <laughs> finally fed. And I read these just horrible descriptions of people who came out of like prisoner of war camps where they were being starved. And I do not in any way mean to compare my life to those kinds of just hellacious life experiences. But the thing that I got was that, you know, like they sit down at their first meal and all these poor people who have just, you know, been through hell, all they eat is the fat off the table. And then literally they'll eat the salad dressing. They eat the butter, they eat the sour cream, they eat the salad dressing, and then they pick their heads up for air. Okay, what else is there to eat? But it's the fat. Yeah. It's so crucial to human health and especially to our brains. And you're not getting any on these no. diets. And they've told everybody now, at least in the United States, for decades, that we're all supposed to eat this low carb, this high carb, low fat diet. And all it's done is make everybody sick. It's right. made, I mean, it's it's horrible what it's done. It's this vast experiment that did on the American public. The only good thing, the only thing that makes me feel a little bit better, was when this when the Senate tried to pass all these measures. There was this thing called the McGovern Commission, and George McGovern was a senator, and he was the one that had this big commission that tried to put forward this idea that you know animal fats were terrible and we should all eat this other way. But they had to have eight weeks of um, more uh, witnesses come and testify before the Senate because so many doctors rose up and said, you can't do this. Like We know that these traditional fats are protective of human health. They have been forever. <laughs> um, this is just wrong. You can't do this kind of experiment. They lost, but they all—they there really was an effort from the very beginning to say this is not going to be an appropriate diet for humans. Um, they didn't—they didn't win the day then. But you know, these traditional fats have been utterly vindicated now, because mm. there's been study after study after study, even on the like the cover of major magazines like Newsweek and Time. Um, everybody gets it now. Like it was all just based on nothing. And there's, of course, huge financial interest behind it. Um, and they, they, they did, they ran the experiment and it didn't help. It made everybody fat and sick. And it's just, it's been really terrible. And yeah. all of these diseases have gone up. None of them have gone down. Everybody did what they were told. I mean, if you look at the chart of what people are eating, it's way more carbohydrate and way less saturated fat and way less meat. And all that's happened is just health has degraded. So yeah, I ran the experiment too, and it didn't work. So, okay, so insulin receptors, you're going to have depression, anxiety, um, terrible emotional state all the time. Just, you're, I would like, couldn't find my wallet, and I would lie on the living room floor and cry. Like, <laughs> you're not supposed to cry because you can't find your wallet. <laughs> you're supposed to cry when like somebody gets cancer or, you know, your dog gets hit by a car, but not finding your wallet doesn't count as like cry level. But I would just, degenerate into a puddle like there was just there's no bounce in that brain mm. when, when you don't feed it what it needs so anyway so that's going to happen um another big issue is problems with your reproductive organs so cholesterol is like the mother hormone all of your sex hormones are made from cholesterol so it's like the base substance that you need in order to make things like estrogen and, and testosterone and your body has really interesting sort of fallback plans, right? Everything is, has sort of multi-layers to make sure that you stay alive. So if you don't have enough cholesterol, your body does an interesting thing, which is it says, all right, these are the hormones you need to stay alive day to day. The hormones you need for reproduction, we don't need those right now. We can talk about babies in a year or two when there's more food out there. Right now is clearly starvation. There's a famine or something. I don't know. You tell me. But in the meantime, we're going to keep you alive. So we're only going to make these hormones. But these sex hormones, we're going to put those away till later. So that's what happens when you eat a low cholesterol diet. 
There's not enough to go around. So your body's going to prioritize the ones that are just keeping you alive. So what this means is uh, very low fertility rates. And I mean, this is a noted phenomenon in young women who are athletes, um, but absolutely in women who eat vegetarian diets, vegan, especially any kind of low fat diet is their menstruation stops. So right. those women, the little gymnasts, you know, who never really hit maturity because they have to stay so small. It's, it's, it's an issue throughout their lives. There's been a lot of research done on them and it's really awful what happens to them. Um, but that's what happens when you stop puberty, <laughs> when you don't give the body enough fuel to actually go through puberty or uh, to keep up you know, sort of a, a normally functioning female reproductive system. And that happened to me. I stopped getting my period a year in and basically didn't menstruate for 20 years. Nobody could tell me why. Um, it was horrible. Um, nobody even looked at diet? Like when you went no, to a doctor, nobody even asked you what you were eating? Once. Oh. Once. And it was like, well, you can go on the pill. That's the best we can do for you. And I'm like, I'm not going to go on the pill. Like, so because you don't have the hormones, they're going to give you hormones. Well, I, I mean, if somebody had tested my levels, I'm sure they would have been really low, but they never even ran a blood test for me. It was like, oh, well, things are weird. Things are mystery mysteries. If you want to have a regular hormone cycle, we can give you the pill. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. But, and in my case, it was so dramatic because after I stopped being a vegan, like I got my period back. And especially when I stopped eating soy from that point forward, oh my God, it was like clockwork. I'm not exaggerating every 28 wow. days. After 20 years of like basically nothing, it was, I mean, it was stunning even to me. And I, at that point had already done all this research. I shouldn't have been so shocked, but it was like, what have I done to myself? And in my case, I didn't want to have children, so it wasn't as crucial, but yeah. it would have been, you know, a decade of just heartbreak if I had honestly wanted to have a baby, because there's no way. I just, just, my body was not going to do it. So, so it's a real issue and that it's, it's just as true for men. It's just, it's not as quite as obvious because, you know, they don't need to menstruate, so they're not going to see it. But um, yes, very low testosterone levels and they've all kinds of this, this, the health problems that come to men from not having enough testosterone. So heart disease, they go bald early, um, you know, just that general lassitude, um, you know, sexual function issues. And it's, it's from the same thing. So everybody feels better eating a huge chunk of animal fat every day is essentially the take home point. Isn't um, it weird? It, it, I, I do feel that we've got Mo this modernity that we the, the world in which we live medicine mm -hmm. seems to be quite far away oh. <laughs> <laughs> medicine seems quite far away from our bodies if that makes sense like we've sort of yeah. stopped understanding how the how we basically work and then the other problem in the united states i don't think this is so bad in europe having traveled a bit around europe um we don't really have a food culture here you know, it's essentially a nation of immigrants, though there are certainly First Nations people here who are trying to hold on to their food cultures. But you've got so many different people coming from so many different places over the last few hundred years. And it doesn't coalesce into one thing, right? Like everybody right. has their own sort of ethnic background, their own food, and it all sort of got swept away in the 50s. As if you're gonna be a modern person, i.e. an assimilated white American, you eat food from a factory. It comes in a can, it comes in a frozen box. You don't eat that weird ethnic stuff that your grandparents ate. All of that gets abandoned. But those are all the traditional food practices that kept people healthy for generations. So nobody eats organ meats. Nobody has any particular um, you know, loyalty to cheese or to this kind of sausage or to this kind of broth. All of that got just 
swept away in this sort of modern thing. And when I've traveled around Europe, it's nowhere near as bad. People still know how to make sausage. Or that this is the cheese we eat and it comes from the mountain and these are the things we do with our cheese and you have to eat our cheese or like whatever the thing is, right? Mm. We don't do that in the United States. It's just like fast food and frozen McNuggets and it's terrible. Um, and the only people who yeah. remember how to cook are the grandmothers, you know, and everybody else just doesn't care. And so when they came along and said, oh, don't eat any animal fat, don't eat any animal protein, everybody was like, okay, fine, we'll just eat potato chips. And <laughs> like, there's not an uprising to say, no, this is our food, you can't take it away. Like, there's not that kind of loyalty, um, right. except maybe a, like on Christmas or, you know, pick your holiday of your people. Those, that's when the traditional foods yeah. roll out. But other than that, it's, nobody really has, there's, there's no like genetic connection to it. Like nobody feels that kind of, that loyalty to, you know, this is my culture. These are my people. This is our yeah. food. It's just gone. So I think it was really easy to do this to Americans, you know, as a well, group. Quite high pleasure food and survived, hasn't it? So the pizza has survived. Yeah, no. that's, that's delicious. It's quick and it's easy. easy. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Wow. So. So there's that. Okay. And then a few other things, you're going to destroy your joints because in order for the human digestive tract to absorb minerals, you have to eat fat with the minerals. In that meal, you have to have fat in it, which is why it's ridiculous to eat salad with low fat salad dressing. You're not going to absorb a single thing from those vegetables without some fat. So you're not going to get any minerals. And then if you're eating that kind of you know whole food diet, those grains in particular and those beans, they have anti-nutrients in them. So anti-nutrients are things that plants produce to stop people from eating them and their babies are their seeds so they have fortified their babies with the best kind of defenses that plants can produce and plants are masters at chemical warfare so seeds come coated in stuff that make them impossible to digest um, we don't really think about this uh, but that's the case so every time you're eating quote a whole grain what you're eating is a whole load of anti-nutrients and some of those anti-nutrients are called phytates or phytic acid. And what they do is they bind with minerals in your digestive tract so that you can't access them. And this is the plant's way of saying, you can eat my babies if you want, but I'm going to make you crippled and old before your time because you're not going to get any minerals. So you're going to destroy your joints. And that was one of the main things that I did. I have degenerative disease at five levels of my spine. Um, never going to go away once you've once you destroy your joints, you don't get them back. They're very poorly vascularized. So uh, two years into being a vegan, I already was destroying my spine and nobody knew why. It was again, one of those like, keep going to doctors, try to find out what's going on and nobody can figure it out. And you know, eventually it all became clear, but yeah. So now, you know, if I go to the orthopedist or the, you know, the spine specialist, they take one look at my MRI and they'll be like, wow, you were in a massive car accident or you fell off a roof. Like, what did you do? Like, this is insane. No, it was the nutritional equivalent. I was never in an accident. None of that happened to me. But what I did was day after day, I didn't eat enough minerals because I wasn't eating meat. Um, and I ate food that in fact was draining my body of minerals because I was doing the right thing and eating the great whole grain, whatever. And that's what I did. So that's another problem. And that's very common, especially in I get these emails all the time from young vegetarians and vegans who were just like me. And at age 24, they've wrecked their knees, their hip hurts all the time. They've got all kinds of back problems. They're not menstruating. They're depressed as shit. And they know it's not working. And they want to know, what do I do now? So, yeah, it's 
you're going to drink a lot <laughs> drink a fat milkshake every morning maybe yes so yeah. <laughs> raw milk you get it get it full fat a grass-fed cow is the best food you'll ever get it's so good for humans yeah it's so it's mind-boggling that wow. we know the body needs nutrition that nobody thought about your nutrition for decades well, i will say i will give a little bit of um you know uh praise to my mom she hated that i was a vegan hated it right like she knew this couldn't be right. And in fact, she cried herself to sleep many nights knowing that Gosh. this was just wrong. And I, but I wasn't going to budge. Like I knew I was on the true believer. I knew this was the right thing. And I, I was, I believed it. So I just kept going. And did your body that, never tell you? Did your did. I mean, I know all it was... <laughs> the time. I felt like crap and it only got worse. You didn't and have cravings though? Oh, it was terrible. It's terrible. And everyone who does these diets will tell you about, you know, they cheated or they binged. You're not cheating. You're not binging. You are listening. Right. That's because, your body telling you, you've got to get some fat into that right. brain. Because when you I was pregnant. so much better afterwards. <laughs> There's like this bizarre idea that, oh, you're going to feel so sick. And we all said that, oh, you're going to feel so sick if you eat the, you never feel sick afterwards. Really? You feel so much better and you don't know why. Like it's not supposed so, to be like this. When I when I was pregnant, and I think I believe I'm quite intuitive with my body at the moment. My body's saying, "For Christ's sake, will you stop drinking?" Because mm -hmm. you're constantly tired and you're bursting out of your clothes. So it really, <laughs> it really has, is having a, quite a strong word, and I, I'm having a bit of a I need to stop. And it's so easy with the lockdown. But when I was pregnant, um, loads of stuff tasted like liver for a start so my taste completely changed but i would just have these absolute ravenous cravings oh, for yeah. whatever food it was and i i went with it because i thought well my body's telling me that i need salty fish or i mm. need whatever um so did you obviously you must have had them but at your heart i'm guessing you were thinking about not killing animals and saving the planet so go you so yeah, how no, did was you, we all did the same thing, which is, you know, you'd have these terrible moments where you're like, oh no, I'm just going to eat that cream cheese. And then I would eat the cream cheese. And then I would feel like the worst person on the planet. Um, and then it was always the same thing. You would take down the vegan books from the shelf and you would just sit and read for a while. Like you would get yourself back in to the crazy mindset of, I cannot stray from this path. And then right. you would take all temptation out of your way. Like I talk about this in the book, how on my way to school, um, there was this place that had bagels and cream cheese and uh there was about a six weeks period where twice a week I was doing that I was eating that cream cheese and I was so horrified by my behavior that I changed it so that I never had to walk by that store again like I made sure I don't just do not go into that building where the, the store is that has because you know where it's going to end and mm. I just and I did that by just completely refocusing my mind on no no be a vegan you have to be a vegan don't don't stray from the path you know you'll fall and then you'll never get back on the wagon. Like, just don't do it. You have to, you know, this is the right thing. So you just, it's this weird cognitive dissonance where you know it's not working. You feel like crap. You feel way better eating. That little tiny portion of cream cheese was enough to make me feel so much better all day. But like that way madness lies. You, you can't acknowledge right. that it's not working. So it's like, it's like the worst kind of cult behavior. Um, or, you know, I read about the other, the other the kind of, you know, phenomenon where people have, talked about that cognitive dissonance like the the Zosha cattle killing cult and you know, like the crazy things people have gotten into where they really believe 
um, despite all evidence. And so you just reaffirm your belief stronger and stronger. You never can step out and say, it's not working. Give it up. It's like you just keep reinvesting. And I know I'm not the only one who did that. Like that no. is what, that's how you get through it. It's like, you just keep telling yourself, it'll be all right. I'm, I'm on the path of righteousness. This is, you know, the truth. This is what's going to save the world. You can't be the one that falls. You have to light the way for others. Like you have to keep being a vegan. So, and it's really easy for humans, I think, to create these food taboos too. Yeah. It's really easy. There's something about our brains that is, I don't know what that is, but it's a thing. Like you see this in so many cultures where that's the unpure food. That's the, the, the unclean food. And if you do it, you know, the devil has now entered and you can totally do that as a vegan. It's like this really repellent thing. And mm -hmm. I, the, the first day that I ate meat again, I ate tuna fish out of a can. Um, I remember like thinking about all the, the people I had known who had been Orthodox Jews and how they have to have two separate sets of, um, of cooking utensils and also like flatware and plates and stuff. And if, if you mix them up at all, you have to go outside and smash the plate. Like if you put dairy on the meat plate, you, you're not allowed to ever use it. It's completely trafe. They say it's unclean forever and you have to get rid of it. And I remember thinking about that as I ate that tuna fish out of that can was like, I don't want this in my house. This feels so unclean, so unpure. I mean, it was visceral. Like I'm not going to put it on my plates. I'm eating it out of the can with a plastic fork because I don't want this in my house. I mean, it was that level of just the taboo mm. that I had. But how did it taste? Oh, it was the <laughs> best thing I ever eaten. It was, and it, it was horrifying and also such a relief. You know, it was both because I didn't want it to be true that I needed to eat meat, and I felt so much better. So I mean, it was within three seconds I was a new person. And they don't Gosh. have an explanation for this. Like no, and we all go through it. Anyone who's been long term and then eats the meat, you're like, they call it a meat gasm because you feel so good. And the people who are still doing it don't believe us, but it's like, you, you cannot describe how good it feels to eat that food. It's every cell in your body is getting a recharge. Like it's being plugged into a wall socket of just pure life force that you did not even know you were missing. You feel so much better. So I was shaking all over. It was an amazing thing. But it's also that moment when you have to grow up. Like it's like, what have I done to myself? And none of this was true. I'm going to have to find a whole new way to think about the world. It just collapses all around you. I know. It was really hard. Um, with respect to being a vegan then, uh, clearly you did your research and you realized that actually the vegan practices of producing food was not really saving the planet in the way that you thought. That's one obstacle. And I think if you see competing evidence and you fall on the side that actually it's better to eat a balanced diet for the planet, then that's something that's, that's not a really big uh, sort of guilt-laden thing. You can, you can square it. But I'm assuming it was a lot more difficult to square the killing of animals because I know that you love animals so very oh. deeply. So did you wrestle with that at all? Uh, wrestled very, very long and hard. I, it was honestly, it was a good two years of right. coming to grips with all of this. So in my life, the trajectory was, you know, I'm trying my hardest to be the purest, best person that I can be. And I, and I want to have actions in my personal life that, you know, feel like they're having political import. I want to do the right thing. So the vegans presented me with this, as a complete package. You know, if you do yeah. this one thing, right, if you take 
animal products out of your diet. You'll save the planet, you'll save animals, you'll save humans from starvation, like all these great things are gonna happen. All you have to do is be a vegan. So, you know, all along that trajectory is like I start to understand that food miles are important, right? You're supposed to eat close to home, as local as you can, the fossil fuel is the issue. And I really wanted to learn to grow my own food. I felt like I should be part of this process. So I started to learn to garden. Um, and immediately, <laughs> as a vegan, this gets really, really sticky because number one, to have healthy soil, you start to understand what soil is. And it is literally dead plants and dead animals acted upon by bacteria and other little tiny creatures who then uh, digest the dead stuff and release those nutrients back into the food cycle. And you're trying to make that cycle stronger if you're gonna be a good organic gardener. The entire point is to feed the soil and keep the soil healthy. And I also knew that um, you know, topsoil was being destroyed around the world and the really important thing you can do is build topsoil. And you can't do that as a vegan. It's just not possible. So, so first of all, you're realizing that this entire cycle depends on death. It's death and life are the same moment. And that's really horrifying for me anyway, as a vegan, because I didn't want death to be part of it at all. I wanted to be the person that had no death at all anywhere near her food. But right. the moment you start gardening, you say, this can't be done. Like it's literally what soil is. It's what life is. And I'm, so I was stuck. Like, how do I make sense of what is so clear before my eyes? All making total sense. And I don't want it to be true. So for me, it was like this, reel back and forth with the cognitive dissonance for a good 10 years trying to come to grips with it. So that's number one, it's just the soil itself. You have to add manure, you have to add blood meal and bone meal. Those are things that plants want. That's what plants eat is dead animals, yeah. right? So, but I couldn't as a vegan. And I would go to the store and look at all the, you know, the groovy organic fertilizer. And I'm the person who always has to read the labels. I wanna know, is this <laughs> vegan? I'm like, it's blood meal. This is horrifying. This comes from a slaughterhouse. It's why does this exist? This is so horrible. But then what else are you going to put on the garden? How else are you going to fertilize the soil? So then, you know, my only, the, the way that I came to terms with it was I, I had friends who had goats and they had a barn that was filled with manure. They really needed the barn, the manure out of the barn. You have to clean it out twice a year. And they were desperate for somebody. So I, you know, I managed to get a load of manure from their barn and I thought, well, the goats have a good life. But I knew that this was not vegan. There's no way. These animals are being horribly exploited and it's also terrible and we shouldn't have animals and all of that it was like what am I going to do how am I going to grow my food it was an utter crossroads and there was no way forward so I kept adding the manure but I knew that this was I was failing right. as a vegan so there's one but then the real issue of course is that all the other creatures that want to eat that food so every day there's a battle going on where you have all kinds of animals that want to eat your lettuce and they want to eat your tomatoes and they want to eat your beans and what are you going to do with them? How are you going to deal with this? And there's not a good answer. And, you, and then you've got the rabbits and you've got the deer. Like we're in competition. What's the way forward? And the real issue for me was the slugs because every night they came out and they destroyed my garden. Right. And I would replant. I mean, this went on for weeks where I replanted everything and then they would come back and eat it again. And I, there was no way. Like they just kept, they just leveled the garden every night. What do you do? And most people are like, well, you kill them. Like, I can't. They're animals. I'm the person who doesn't kill animals. And this just kept me awake at night. It was absolutely horrible. 
and I put out beer trap finally, like I'm going to have to just kill them. And I couldn't do it. I woke up at two in the morning. I ran outside. I emptied the beer. I saved the slugs. I felt so much better. And then of course they ate the garden again. This was like the sixth time I had replanted it. Like, I don't know what to do. I just won't have a garden. I just won't. Cause I can't, it, the cognitive dissonance, it was, I couldn't do it. And this was such a moment in my life. So I went to the store. I was like, I'm just going to buy lettuce. I won't have to grow it. I'll just buy it. And I stood there at the store and I was literally holding this head of organic lettuce in my hands and I grew up and I literally thought to myself, who the fuck are you kidding? If that lettuce is worth eating, somebody somewhere killed slugs. Somebody somewhere put manure and blood meal and bone meal on a piece of land and they killed some deer, most likely. They shot some woodchucks, rabbits, like they had to do something to protect that food on their farm. Never mind the slugs. A whole bunch of creatures died to make the soil happen and to protect that food. Animals died and you're lying to yourself. If you think buying a head of lettuce somehow makes that death not happen because you don't have to see it, you're supposed to be the person who's willing to look at everything. Like that's your claim here is that you're your moral high ground. You're not backing away from the hard stuff. Like you're facing factory farming and you're facing all the animal torture. And you have to do that right now. This is a head of lettuce. You know, you know, you've tried, you know what goes into this head of lettuce. You have to stop pretending that there's no death in this lettuce because you know, you have seen for yourself how much death is in lettuce. You can do it yourself, pay somebody else to do it, but stop pretending animals didn't die. And it was a terrible moment. And it was also a really liberating moment because it was like the fairy tale was over. It's like, no, I'm going to be an adult now. I'm going to stop running from this. I have to admit there are dead animals in every last bite that I eat. And then it's okay, so what's the best way? Like, What is the least death for animals? And this again was information that I struggled with for 20 years because at the end of the day, agriculture is the most destructive thing that people have done to the planet. We have wiped out 98% of the habitat for animals. 200 species are going extinct every single day. 200 species every day. And it's because of agriculture ultimately. That's what we're doing. We have skinned the planet alive. And I couldn't face that as a vegan. At the same time, I was trying to understand why is the planet in such bad shape? What is the thing humans have done that's so terrible that we've ended up in this mess? Like, why? And of course, you know, the, the more you study, the more you learn, the more you're engaged, like you keep coming back to this pattern that's called civilization. And there's animal, you know, there's agriculture and that's the basis of it. And what is it? You take a piece of land you clear every living thing off it, and I mean down to the bacteria, and then you plant it to human use. So it's biotic cleansing. I mean, we've yeah. all heard of you know ethnic cleansing. Well, this is like that, only worse, because it's every last living creature is removed from that land, and then you only grow humans on it. And that's the last 10,000 10, years in a few sentences. That's what we've done around the globe. Every single mm-hmm. place agriculture could take, it has taken. So 98% of the old growth forests and 99% of the world's prairies are gone. And what we're raising instead is a crop of humans. So it's corn and soy and wheat, and it's all for humans. So the animals have nowhere to go. The plants are gone, and we're degrading the topsoil. Every single year, there's less and less soil. And the beginning of global warming is not the industrial age. It is not the year 1800. You have to back it up to the beginning of agriculture. It's much slower, but that's where global warming starts. And it starts because the soil is vaporizing and literally just releasing carbon into the atmosphere. So we've been warming the globe that long. If you look at the big chart, not 1800 to now, but the really big chart back 10,000 years, um, we've added as much carbon from the beginning of that, of agriculture to the year 1800. 
as we have from 18. So clearly burning fossil fuels is a giant accelerant to this. It's happened a lot quicker, but the same amount of carbon was added to the atmosphere simply mm. doing agriculture. So all those plants and animals are gone. We're destroying the basis of life itself, which is the soil. Um, there's no way you can say this is something that's kind or good to animals. And I didn't yeah. want to know that. I didn't want to know that. I wanted my food. It's so simple. Look at a plate, right? What's on that plate? Did it have a mother or a face? No, it didn't. Great. It's the peaceful food, the wonderful food, the animal friendly food. It's not true. Like entire no. prairies are dead on that plate. Entire rivers have been destroyed for the food on that plate. The water table is being pumped dry for the food on that plate. We're destroying everything for that food. Um, but I didn't want to face that as a vegan. So again, it right. was this terrible struggle. And the one good thing about when all of this collapsed was finally I could stop fighting nation because I had been accumulating all those years. I never stopped engaging really. It's just, I couldn't face it. So right. finally, finally, it's like, all right, now we're going to sit down and really look at this. Now you're emotionally available to this information. Mm. What does this mean? And you know, that's what it comes to is, okay, there's one pattern of human, human um, society that's called civilization. And this is what it is. It's people living in cities dependent on agriculture. That's the pattern that's created all these problems. So now, you know, I can get into a more radical analysis about that, you know, as my life progresses and I understand the problem, but I, I couldn't understand it as a vegan because I didn't want it to be true. I wanted there to be a way of life that was no death, no harm to animals. And the one that I chose was absolutely the worst. It had nothing to do with, I mean, it feels like it does because you're not seeing the death, but it doesn't mean the death isn't there. So really at yeah. the end of the day, we have two choices. We can be, there's the death that's part of the cycle of life, right? It's death becoming life, becoming death, making all of it more lush and more vibrant, more resilient because you're making more life. You have to accept though that, you know, death is every point on that cycle is also somebody dying to feed somebody else, but you can make that cycle stronger by your participation in it. And that's what we did for two and a half million years as humans. That's, that was our role as well. And then there's another kind of death and that's the death that's destroying that cycle. So that's permanent. And that's what agriculture is, is destroying it. So those are really your options. You can do it well, or you can, you know, do it really badly and kill everything, but there's death either way. And it is very hard because I didn't yeah. want that to be true. And it's still really hard. I mean, every day I, you know, I live in the, in a, I'm surrounded by the redwood forest. So I, I there's all kinds of animals, creatures, everybody's here. Um, we even have mountain lions and bears. So we have like apex predators here. As wilderness goes, it's, we've got a little bit. Um, but I see death every day and it's still really hard. You know, like I'm outside my window, there's little spider webs and you know where this ends. Like there's, there's creatures that get stuck in those webs and I, I hate it. Like I have to leave the room. I can't intervene because the spider has to eat and the spiders are part of life. Like they, you can't take spiders out of the world and have, you know, it's like, it would be a huge loss to the, to the web of life. But I, I hate watching it and I, I hate hearing their distress when the insects are caught in those webs. And I just, there's nothing I can do. It's just, I have to accept that this is part of it. And you know, death means more life. Mm. This is the way that they've worked it out between them, the insects and the spiders. But I, it's never an easy moment for me. It still isn't, it would never, it never will be. I think there are people yeah. who find it, find it easier. I, I will never find this easy. I know that I have to do it and do it well, that there's no way out. I can't pretend anymore, but I, don't like it. I wish that there was another one. See, I don't mind a spider catching a fly because I really don't <laughs> like flies. But I'm, I'm, I'm not sorry for that death. I'm really fascinated 
by those sorts of things. Not fasc not fascinated enough to go anywhere near spider because <laughs> I really do hate them. Um, so we've just had this global pandemic and all the uh, apparently uh, the environment has fared a lot better than it did maybe three months ago. And we've sort of proven that some of the measures that we've refused to take over the last 10 years, whether I agree with them or not, or whether they're, whatever the methods, there have been many touted. Um, but it was always that we wouldn't do it because, but now that we could catch a virus, all of a sudden, we're not using our cars as much. We're not flying around the globe. We're doing lots of things that, that probably are a little bit helpful to the planet. Do you think any of this will leave some legacy that we protect the planet better? Or do you think we're just going to go straight back and everything will be back to destructive normality? Um, in this regard, I'm quite cynical. I don't think it's going to make any difference at all. Right. Sorry to say, I don't think people care enough at this point um, to let it actually help restructure the way that we live. Um, I wish that it would, but I don't think it's going to. I do think, like you say, it proves that uh, when we realize we might die, we're willing to do things um, that, in fact, help the planet. But mm. until people, I think, feel that level of emergency in their daily lives, I don't think anything's going to change. No. And I think that the real horror there, of course, is that by the time it really is impacting us, that it's going to be too late. But so that's, that's kind of like your veganism, right? Race against your, time here. <laughs> but but your your veganism was about not seeing the not seeing the suffering right in front of you, even if you contributed to a wider destruction of animal life. Um, I think I I wonder if that's just how we are, because maybe without agriculture, there's some poor people that won't eat. So, yeah, I mean that's I am not someone who gives up hope. Okay, I I still think that fix this. I know plenty of people who think it's over, that there's too many feedback loops already in place, that the Amazon rainforest is just going to burn and <laughs> all of the polar ice caps are going to melt and every one of those things is just going to keep making it worse, right? That it's, it, There's already way too much carbon. It's going to be a thousand years before the effects of that carbon start to decrease. Like Even if we stopped burning carbon tomorrow, it's way too late. But I am not that person. I actually think that the planet could still fix it. Um, and the, the reason that I think that is that I know that there's a, a miracle that happens when ruminants are on grasses and that they build soil and that we could be part of that. That we, if, we can, if we could accelerate the repair of those grasslands, um, there's still every hope that we could sequester all that carbon in the soil because of what grasses and ruminants do together. And it, it's really an amazing thing. So we just have How to- we do that, Leah? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the problem, right? First, we need the analysis. So the we have to understand that agriculture is the beginning of, of the problem, that agriculture itself is a, an inherently destructive activity. Um, and then we need to stop doing it. So anything that destroys topsoil has to stop. So it means right. that the way that we live is, this was like a one-time blowout, honestly. We burned through all the, the fossil soil, that's gone. Um, and what we've been living on instead is fossil fuel. So since 1950, um, that's what's made all, that, all those crops grow is the introduction of uh, fertilizer made from fossil fuel. So somewhere around half of the food, the proteins in people's bodies right now is from fossil fuel. So we're literally eating fossil fuel. That's why the population has essentially quadrupled is we added this huge accelerant to it in the, the form of 
of fossil fuel, or the, it's the Haber-Bosch process is what it's called, and they take oil and gas and they turn it into easily accessible nitrogen, and that's what made the, quote, green revolution happen, was that very cheap, very accessible source of nitrogen was what made all those crops grow, and that's what we're all eating. Um, right. So this, we, we've got to accept that we, what we've done, we have to take a very hard look, a very rational, clear-eyed look at the situation that we're in. Like our inability to face the facts is not gonna change the facts. And I don't say this with any glee, but there are 6 billion people who are only here because of fossil fuel. I'm certainly one of them. You know, like it, it doesn't matter what we think, what we feel about it. Those are just the facts. So what we need is to pull back on population. And as we do that, repair all of the, the biomes, the, the ecosystems that we've destroyed. And the most crucial ones right now, I think, are the grasslands because of that carbon sequestration. So in a forest, um, there's, there's not a lot of soil. The soils tend to be very thin, and, and the hotter it is, the more tropical, the more rain, the thinner the soil gets. So there's not a lot of storage going on in the soil. But when you talk about grasslands, prairies, there's huge, I mean, the, the soil can be 12 feet deep. It's absolutely a deep, deep carbon sink. And the reason that that is, is because those are drier environments, and that's how the community of life stores water, is in that soil. So grasses and ruminants together in those drier environments, their, their job is to make soil, is to make that giant sponge that will hold the water across that dry, 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 long summer. And that's how life survives. So they all play a role in that, which if you want me to talk about, I can. But the point is that deep, deep soil is how that happens. And that's what grasses and ruminants are designed to do. That's how they all evolve together in low rainfall environments. That's what you have. And we took all that land and we turned it into a monocrop of soy and wheat. Um, and so the animals are gone, the plants are gone, and the soil is gone. That's really the problem. If we could get it back, if we could just repair mm. it, then we can start sequestering that carbon. And people have been able to do this at an extraordinary rate when they really put their minds to it. The principles are not hard to learn. We just have to act like the apex predators that we are because that's what's missing right now. Right. Um, the way that it works is the animals have to be tightly bunched and moved very quickly. And that's really it. And when you have what's called an ecology of fear provided by the apex predators, the animals will behave that way. The ruminants and the, and the other large mammals will behave that way, but it doesn't happen without predators. So this is why, I mean, there's this very famous video from Yellowstone Park about what happened when they introduced wolves because all the riverbanks were eroding, which means that waterways were filled with silt, the fish were dying, the trees were dying, everybody's dying. And it's because the elk and the deer are spending way too much time along the riverbanks where life is good and easy and there's little seedlings to eat all the time and everything is lush and yummy and simple and there's nobody pushing them along so they were eroding everything and yeah. they reintroduced the wolves and within 18 months the place was transformed and it's simply because of that ecology of fear the wolves kept mm. the ruminants moving they kept that is the exceptional and that video that's, is we, that's what we have to do. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's amazing what they did. And that's what we have to do. That is our role as humans. We are also apex predators. Keep them bunched, keep them moving, and you can learn how to do this on your land. If you have even a little bit of land, you can learn how to do it. But there are now mm -hmm. millions of acres that are being rehabilitated this way. It's land that for centuries has been degraded, desertified really. Um, and in a very, very short period of time, it comes back to life. Yeah. By adding more ruminants, People always think, oh, you have to take the animals off. It's not the issue. You need more, but they have to behave properly. And the only way to get them to behave is for us to behave, which means we have to be apex predators and make them move. 
keep them bunched, yeah. make them move. And then you see these extraordinary results. So there's a group that I'm in called Soil for Climate. And that's like the goal of the group is to get people to understand that we have to do this. We are going to have to repair all of those trashed out grasslands. And but that's, that's, that's an inviting solution, right? Proactively doing something yeah. is far more appealing of a solution than restricting people and saying, look, you can no longer use your car or you can no longer um, eat, I don't know, beans out of a can, whatever yeah. it is, right? If you say to someone, what we're going to do is we're going to reno basically renovate these soils and we're going to do this to this and this is a great solution so you can continue doing the selfish whatever things that make you happy. I think people could really get behind that. But often climate activists come along and say, we want to take stuff away from you. Well, yes, it's hard um, because the way that we are living right now I mean, it was a one-time blowout. There's three or four generations of people who are ever going to experience this level of wealth, consumption, you know, all the goodies that we have at our fingertips, all of which was made possible by fossil fuel. And, you know, we're on the downside of, of the, the curve now. We've already hit peak oil. So this is going to run out. There's, there's no way around that. There's, the oil and the gas are going to be gone someday. Yeah. And yeah. to me, there's no point in predicting what that day is. Like, who knows? It doesn't matter. It's sometime in the next few decades. It will be gone. So all of this is going to end no matter what. The question is, what shape will the planet be in by the time we run through it all? Um, and what do we do to have some life left by the time this is over? And it's really hard because people, they want what they want. Well, it doesn't really matter what we want. It matters what the planet can support. And I think that we just, we're going to have to be grownups. I mean, I, yeah. I love, there's this line from James Howard Kunstler where he says, the planet needs us to be reality-based adults. And right now we are just living in a dream world where we can have whatever we want, where, I mean, we have more energy at our disposal than if you think of like, you know, the Pharaohs of Egypt or the emperor of Rome, like nobody could even have imagined this level of consumption. We would each have something like 300 personal slaves if humans were providing the energy that fossil fuel gives us. And the thing to remember is it's only a very, very small slice of the population ever got to experience this. Most people have been immiserated so that we could have all this stuff. And the only reason we don't know that is because we live behind a military barricade. You know, I mean, our, especially the US military around the world is making all of this possible for us. Yeah. And we don't even know it. We have no idea what you know, people in Bangladesh and people in Mexico and wherever are, are what they're going through, how their land is being destroyed and how their cultures are being destroyed and how they've all been pushed into urban squalor in the cities. And a lot of this has to do with agriculture, frankly. Um, and then from there, you know, it's like, we want the minerals under their soil. We want the oil under their mm -hmm. land. We want, you know, the, the bauxite from the mountains. So we're going to take it. Yeah. And that way we can have Ruby cell phones and all the fun stuff that mm. everybody thinks they should have. And I, you know, I don't mean to be too much of a, I'm not trying to scold people. That's just the reality of it. Like yeah. we need to look at what's going on out there. And this, this is what the left was supposed to be for. Like we were supposed to care about this stuff. So we can't keep pretending that there's another right. way to fuel it and it will all be fine. There is no other way, other way to fuel it. And pretending that this can go on forever is just telling people that Father Christmas is going to come and give you that pony. Mm. Like, there's no pony. And guess what? There's not even a Father Christmas. Like, Yeah. He never brought me a pony. Well, I never got one either, but you know. <laughs> well, I, what I'm really hoping that comes out of this pandemic is the whole cruise liner industry uh. just, just falls into the sea. But um, I'm hoping that that, because they're just, they're just 
mass pollutants, aren't they? There's just plastic and and they just they're allowed to just dump stuff in the ocean, so they're always just oil and gas just everywhere behind them. And mm. every I mean, I've never been on one, but I've heard that the there's no yeah. real labor labor regulations for the people who work there. So they're yeah. just profoundly exploited. The people who you know the the cooks and the cleaners and the waiters and all the people who run the little city on the boat. It, they have to work these like insane 12, 14 hour days and they have no protection and there's um, just utterly exploited by, by that whole industry. So yeah, it just sounds like, oh, I don't, it just sounds horrible. Honestly. Well, I, I, suspect their con I suspect their contracts are written in a country where the, there well, are exactly. no, there's labor no rights. labor regulations. So they don't yeah. have any. So yeah, they're allowed to just do nice. anything. Yeah. Just lovely stuff. And for what? <laughs> it sounds really boring too. I don't even know why. I get getting I like on a little, yeah. I, you get on like a little sailboat and you get to like, that sounds like fun. I can understand wanting to do that up and down the coast. And with this weird thing where you're just with a bunch of other rich people for six weeks, you know, with a view, I mean, can't even leave. <laughs> it's just mostly ocean, right? I mean, aren't you just, yeah. I guess you're going down coastline. So maybe you do see some stuff, but well, you're not having the local food. Me. I mean, I'm, well, I'm British, uh, but fortunately not, um, I don't follow the stereotype too much of the British abroad, which is just seeking chips and, and beer. Um, <laughs> I, I like going abroad and eating whatever food is local because why wouldn't you go to Greece and right. eat Greek food, right? Sure. But the idea of being, <laughs> of being on a massive ship with, let's face it, you could be next door to someone for six weeks who is just the worst person in the world. Who you hate. Right? Yeah. And then to, to do what? To see some coastline and... No, awful. I but, never um, understood it. Never understood why people do that, but I. No, I don't get it. <laughs> that one, I think we're all happy to just see that one go. But as for yeah. the rest of it, I just I don't see a lot of evidence that. Oh, there don't there don't seem to be any of the major institutions on the planet seem to be headed in the right direction. That's really the issue. They're still all really attached to the idea of fossil fuel. They clearly intend to get every last drop out of the ground, no matter mm. what the cost to the planet. Um, nobody's willing to look at what fossil fuel has done to us as a, as a people, as a culture, the ways that it's destroyed human community. Um, I but mean, it's just so much money level. though. It's I so know. much money though. So why really would, why would they somebody <laughs> sitting on billions want to stop? Keep getting billions. I know. And that's what they're doing. So it's, it's like the guy who exposed the, is it Teflon? That's, yeah. um, I haven't, uh, there's a movie about it and there's, there's a, and it, like the movie made more news about a movie being made with someone like Mark, Mark Ruffalo playing the character than the actual story until I'd seen the actor being interviewed about the movie, which is about someone exposing the fact that anybody who's ever eaten from a Teflon, food from a Teflon frying pan is basically filled with awesome. these tiny particles that will never disappear. I don't know why I didn't know that before Mark Ruffalo was sat on the sofa with Graham Norton. It's, it's <laughs> insane. Yeah, and, and there's so many, I mean, just everywhere we turn in our, in our world, that's what we find is these kinds mm. of toxins and pollutants, and they're everywhere. It's, you know, I, I don't even, like, the, yeah, and they're all endocrine disruptors, and they're all permanent, and they're all going to cause cancer and Alzheimer's, and they're in every single mammal's breast milk like from polar bears to humans. And this is what we did. We, we've covered the world in toxins and somebody thought this was a good idea. So, I mean, that's the beginning of the environmental movement is Rachel Carson, you know, fighting DDT saying, maybe we do want a world with birds in it. Could we maybe stop with DDT? 
uh, and she was utterly smeared, you know, and yeah. by the it's it's horrible what they did to her, but she kept fighting. So well, even the Flint water thing, right? Oh the, yeah. The fact that they do, they don't have clean running. I, I mean, I think I don't think it's changed, has it? No. How many years can this go on? It's, in America, this is this isn't India where there's Nestle stealing water. This is, and it's and right your and the way your government is set up, it doesn't seem to be. Even if there was a president that bothered with it, and I'm I'm I think. Obama played lip service somewhat to the Flint stuff, but did nothing about it. So why why can't federal why can't a president step in? Is it because it is it, is it privately owned? So part of the problem is we always have this conflict between states' rights and the federal government, and these things are very very contested about who who has what powers to do these things. Um, so my guess is the federal government doesn't really have jurisdiction over it, that it would be a state issue. So it really but is But how are they getting re-elected? How's anyone getting re-elected <laughs> in oh, that place where they've got no water? I don't know. It's really bad. And I mean, and there's little places like that all over the country that yeah. where the infrastructure is just completely decayed and people's water supplies or their air supply has been utterly toxified by various industrial processes and nobody nobody seems to care because they're <clears throat> rural and poor so yeah. I mean it really is like a third world country in a lot of places here and I think people in cities really don't don't understand well I mean there's certainly poor people in cities that have to live next to oil refineries and stuff so it's not even like people in cities are free from it but yeah yeah I mean obviously it's a huge class division and again you know the left should be on this this is kind of where they live so I, I just find it um no, I'm, I'm always like we have our own political failings in this country and we do have many of them. But I often wonder why when anybody's campaigning politically in America that they are not covering things like clean water. Um, but also they don't cover workers rights either. They, they don't cover maternity rights. They don't want more holiday. Like you have such dreadful working rights in the United States that we have nothing. We just get nothing. <laughs> So it's bad. horrible. And then we're not even going to discuss healthcare. The healthcare thing, my whole life, I've thought, why is there not a revolution on this issue alone? Just on this issue alone. And it's very bizarre to me how people have been captured by the ideology of the right. Is it the people who yeah. are willing to vote against their own economic interests, their own health interests, their own community interests, for a really bizarre story that is essentially, I mean, the, the three issues that they built all of that on were abortion, gun rights, and gay marriage. And they lost gay marriage. Everybody has to accept that that's a thing now. So what they've got left is gun rights and, um, and abortion. And I, that's really worth it to you people. I don't get it. You'd rather not drink clean water, but have people who believe in your second amendment, right? Like I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. I know pro-lifers that don't think healthcare is a human right. I don't, and, Perhaps it's been British because we've always had it, but what is, I can't think that you wouldn't think that poor people deserve access to healthcare at the same time as you believe that, you know, a woman, even a rape victim, or we don't even need to use moral judgment, but a woman doesn't have the right to choose when she's pregnant to terminate like a four week, six week, nine week pregnancy. I know. But she also has no right to healthcare. It's nuts. It doesn't make kids. any sense. And the people Listen. who, there was a book that was written about exactly this phenomenon, which I think was called Tempest in the Teapot. 
and she went around to all that was when the Tea Party movement started. So it was like this real kind of right wing populism that got going. Um, and they, uh, she went around and interviewed a whole bunch of them. And they, they're, they're real. They were so against any kind of a single payer, like government funded healthcare system. But a third of them were literally on, like really, primary healthcare interventions like oxygen. Like they were carrying around little oxygen tanks because they had such bad emphysema or whatever. Like they would be dead in a month if they didn't have access to, oh, what do you know, Medicare? Like they actually needed the government run healthcare to stay alive. But they were all saying, well, we don't want government run healthcare. We don't want, it's like, but you have it and it's keeping you alive. Yeah. How, it was like the cognitive dissonance in these people. And that's what we've got here is this yeah. really, I don't know how to break through it. I'm no good at talking to these people. They don't make any sense. That is amazing. I've seen I've seen right wingers who oppose healthcare talking about like in disparaging ways about our NHS over yeah. here, saying, "See, sometimes it's really bad." Well, yeah, sometimes in comparison to maybe um, I don't know if you have knee surgery and you pay private and you've gone private over here, then perhaps the NHS isn't so great. But there are some people in America that could never have that knee surgery, yeah. and there's a lot of them. It's just millions of them. So, and one really funny part on that was that forever in a day, they would say, well, Stephen Hawking would have been killed if he had been on the, if he had a state kind of like that. Sort of. And they, they always used him as an example. And then there was this great moment where he actually wrote a letter, um, a public letter. And he said, could you please stop using my name in this? The NHS has taken care of me my entire life. I have no complaints. I have gotten everything I've ever needed. They have taken fabulous care of me. Yes, I wouldn't be alive without them. Please stop using my name in this regard because they've kept me alive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I love the NHS. Like this is everything you people should have. What are you talking about? This is a great letter yeah. from Stephen Hawking. So, but no, I don't it get is it. Weird. So it was um, really weird. Yeah, we have a really strange thing here in the United States. That's it's all about individualism and this sort of bizarre libertarian bent, and it's very right wing. And I don't understand these people. They no. I mean, your left is right. Your left is to the right of our right. Yeah, um, much, and yeah. I don't. I don't think. I don't think British people understand that either. That actually, when they talk about the left, it's it's just so it's just so different to anything that we have here. Yeah. Um, so finally, because I've yeah. kept you for a really long time this morning, thank you so much. Uh, who do you think it's going to be? Do you think it's going to be Biden or Trump? <laughs> I honestly, I, I think Trump is going to win. Well, I, it's terrible. Screws your economy. I think I, no matter how bad he does, his people just rally around. He has so mishandled this the coronavirus business. He's been horrible. Just and every day he puts up another one of these ridiculous. They should just take the microphone away from him. His press conferences are amazingly horrible, and he blows it every single day. He tells lies. He makes shit up. It, it's like unbelievable and i think he's doing it on purpose earlier i think he's doing i i listen to i don't listen to him that often actually but i listened to something that he was doing and it very much felt like he was sort of provoking people to do stuff without being able to take any responsibility for the provocation so it really did feel like he was pushing people into stuff um and protecting himself at the same time and i i, I wonder if that's you then have to blame, blame your governor if the president has said something and your governor is saying something else and the president is, has got no responsibility there. 
but Biden's a, a nightmare. Oh, he's also. It's horrible. He's I mean, horrible. we know I, Trump. Trump's a monster, I, right? But I, this is going to be the worst election day of my life. I'm. I just have no idea what. I, I don't know what the Democrats were doing. It's like there, there were a lot of actually pretty good candidates, honestly. I mean, for mainstream politics, as good as it gets. And every last one of them dropped out one by one. What happened and to Warren? She just wasn't polling well enough. And this is the problem. We had so many candidates running in the primaries that it really split them. If there were too okay. many small chunks. If one of them, if like four of them had dropped out and everybody had said, great, we're going to go with Warren, she would have beat Biden, I'm pretty sure. But there were too many of them and none of them would drop out. So it all got split into tiny little, tiny little chunks of the electorate. And then Biden ended up getting more. Well, maybe they need to redo the system because they do in a huge I mean, way and we need to have instant runoff voting is what we need so you yeah. can vote you know one two three and then it would be weighted and then immediately because then it wouldn't you wouldn't have the splitting problem um, yeah. that would go a long way to fixing what's wrong in the united states it would go a long way i mean you and i probably disagree with warren on her whole kind of um promotion of transing transitioning children <laughs> but i think that she's foolish and i think she like many politicians listens to a very minority, very loud minority of people on social media and so on. And she, I don't think she really knows that if you genuinely asked Americans if they think that they should be giving 12-year-old girls double mastectomies, I think they'd be saying no. So the problem with all of the Democrats is that they've been institutionally captured by, you know, in, we have the Human Rights Campaign here, which is the big LGBT, capital T organization. Mm. All they do is T stuff now. Um, and they are the ones who, you know, there's some money involved, but I think it's bigger than that. There's sort of a, there's an, it's an ideological capture that's happened to the Democrats um, with the trans problem. Yeah. So it, there's no, it, this is going to, this is going to take a generation to get it out. It's not, yeah. it's, this is a long, slow, hard battle. They, they want it and trying to get sort of a more average people to understand how bad it is, is part of the battle. Yeah. Because they don't believe us. Well, you're us. silent, aren't you? Yeah, you're they quite. Don't believe us how bad yeah. it is, and that there's you cannot run as a Democrat unless you support, like you say, mastectomies for 12-year-olds and puberty blockers for 10-year-olds, and any child who experiences, you know, any kind of disjuncture between who they want to be and who society tells them they should be is like immediately medicalized. Um, so it's what's going to change that, Leah? Because we're we're changing it. I'd say that we're doing quite well. It's been amazing to watch what's happening in your country. It's very, very helpful for us. So I think a few things are going to change it. One is we're going to, the biggest thing is we're going to have to have some medical malpractice suits. We're going to have to have some of these young people who have been permanently sterilized, permanently mutilated, are going to have to find this, you know, find the courage somewhere to be the person who puts their name on that, on the, on that lawsuit, which means we're going to need a lawyer. And the only people who are willing to fight this are right-wingers. And that's part of the issue. If we could find somebody on the left who'd be willing to do it, uh, it might be more possible to find a survivor to come forward, but there aren't any. It's, everyone is such a coward. The ideological capture has been complete. So there aren't any left-wing lawyers who are willing to take it on. All there are is the right-wing kind of think tanks who will do it. So it's either gonna have to be somebody who's so angry about what's happened to her that she's willing to work with a right-wing lawyer or somebody who isn't particularly politically motivated and doesn't really mm. care that it's a, a right wing, right wing, uh, legal stable. But I, I don't know who that person is, and we have yet, we have yet to find that person who's willing. Some of the lawyers that I have heard talk about it, sort of in private, will say that the, really the best candidate would be a man. It would have to be a young man, had his genitals removed. That in court, that 
that would just be that's, I mean, what, just, fine. that's like when a baby dies like you, you can't win those lawsuits like if it's a dead baby it's over you just settle and it's it's the same thing like if, if it's a young boy who's a young man who's had his penis removed it's it's horrible like everybody like how is this even happening how is that a sentence i can say out loud but this is where we are in america that you know young people are having their genitals removed um but that's the kid they really need to come forward and it's really hard to find him so well, I think the lawsuits would be huge. That would put a huge break on this system. And until we have that breakthrough, it's just going to keep rolling. Well, I wonder with the with those sorts of profound um, bodily harms comes with that is must be some emotional and, and mental mental fragility that actually you're probably far more likely just to be in depth, the depths of despair and depression. So you probably don't feel that you want to take that massive, great, big ideological mountain on. Um, whoever's well, supporting you. It would be a decade before you could come to grips with what had happened to you, what you've done to yourself. How did I fall for this? And then just the horror of a life essentially never having sex at age 25 or something. I don't, I don't mm -hmm. even know how people are coming to grips with, 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 with the metal you know, interventions that have happened to them. Yeah. I just, I don't know how you handle that level of grief. So we're talking about, you know, a decade on, you know, you've finally made some peace with what's happened. You're willing to go forward, but we're a ways from that now. It's, this is all so new that we don't have a generation of people who have reached full adulthood and have fully integrated their trauma around this that could now come forward and, and be that, that survivor who's willing to have the survivor voice. Mm. We, don't, we, don't, we don't know that person yet. So hopefully if you're out there, please get in touch with someone. Um, there are lawyers who will help you, but they're gonna be conservative lawyers. Well, I, I think when you talk like that, and I reflect, so right at the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about how certainly British feminists, as well as some American, but very vocal, supposedly respectable women in the UK are disparaging about anybody working with the right. And I think that what they do is they lend weight to the argument that actually your left purity and your assistance has to come from the left, even when it can't come from the left because it's not there, that you have to wait for that. And so they are adding so much weight to the idea that actually if you're broken and you want to be fixed, then I'm sorry, but the left is more important than you. Yeah. And also a lot of those women are willing to write for right-wing publications. They will work with more conservative people about surrogacy or prostitution to try to get legal remedies. It's just mm -hmm. for some reason, Wolf is not allowed to do it on the trans issue. And I have no idea how they are able to draw those lines in their heads to say, oh, I'm still, in, I'm still doing the righteous thing. You people are doing the bad thing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense to me at all because they're doing exactly the same thing. Because that's what politics is. That's what it is. You find the people who are willing to get shit done and yeah. you do it. I don't, well, I'm, okay. I'm, in my mind's eye, it's very fortuitous to meet those, the mothers. And, oh, yeah. You know, and, and in my, nothing is more important than them. Not my trash reputation, not standing next to and beside people who are, you know, in all other ways, people I would politically oppose. But nothing's more important than that, those human beings that are being um sterilized and mutilated and will never have an adult sort of sexual relationship and will never even fancy anyone you know if if they aren't really important especially the, the girls if they're not really important i don't really know what what any feminist label is actually for 
I don't know how they just viscer viscerally don't feel the horror. You know, it's like when I first heard about genital mutilation when I was 16 and I was reading about it and just, you know, I was traumatized for days imagining being that six-year-old girl. And it's much the same. Like, this is what's happening to young girls, young boys, both. You know, they're having their bodies permanently altered. Um, I can't even imagine going through medical menopause at age 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. You know, they're having their uteruses, their ovaries removed, their the puberty blockers, and now they're going to be on what testosterone for the rest of their lives and Mm. you know they have vaginal atrophy and incontinence and we're talking about teenagers some of them we can watch jazz right we can watch jazz i know that you can see it just constant meltdown look what's happened to him i I, that was so horrible that 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 day we all knew his surgery was coming it was all over the news and I, i couldn't get out of bed myself for two days it was like we are as a society watching a teenage boy being genitally mutilated, having his penis removed forever. They are removing his genitals. He will never have sex with another human being his entire life. Everyone is celebrating this. How has it come to this? That at, even at this level, we're not willing to say, this is insane. Stop. You're not doing no. this to this young boy. I couldn't, I could not. I what do you think they're watching? They're watching a brave, stunning journey, right? I guess there's some other kind of, Part of it's the freak show, honestly. I mean, people used to go to circuses and watch, you know, just pay $10 or whatever to see people with mutilated bodies and, you know, like strange anomalies. And that was fun. And it's kind of the same thing. I think part of it's just the rubbernecking effect. And that's horrible. You know, all of that reality TV show is it's some level of that, right? And it does not yeah. speak well to the human race that somebody would watch this just because it's freaky and weird and funny. Because um, it's not, it's horrible, right? Yeah, I mean, but I read the disease. comments. I read the comments under some of these sort of YouTubers that have done similar things to their bodies, although most of them happen to be girls because there seems to be an, a huge appetite for oh, girls that know. call themselves even gay. Some of them even call themselves gay men. Um, so bizarre. Um, so I just... I've watched some of the jazz stuff. I've seen the comments. I remember seeing him when my children were very small, a a video of him in a pink swimming costume with a ponytail, really happy because before that, he wasn't allowed to have a ponytail. So there'd been a a battle with a tiny child where basically he was told that he wasn't allowed to have his hair up because he was a boy. And then there was this milestone when he was allowed his hair up. I can't, I think fundamental experiences like that in very small children um, have the capacity to formulate their entire worldview. You know, um, it's very frightening. But I realize I've kept you for so long. Okay. So, it's been fun. <laughs> I could talk to you for hours and we didn't even do too much of the climate stuff. But I think the, the, the topsoil thing, the fact that there are, they're beginning to be solutions that I think will help people is brilliant. But I shall leave you to your dogs and your day. And I'll say thank you so much for joining me. It was amazing. Thanks very much, Leanne. Next time, we'll do it in person. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, Next episode, I'm talking to Joe Bartosz of Click Off. But for now, please remember to like, share and subscribe. Thank you.